And welcome back. So our first question, it says, I understand the basic concept of design law in that disobedience come, uh, come with disobedience comes a natural consequence for action. But does God ever kill? The experience of Korah, Dathan, and Byram uh, was not a natural event. The flood uh, was not a natural event. Angels of the Lord destroyed 180,000 uh, Syrian soldiers uh, uh, one night. So it seems there are times and circumstances God's judgments of God's judgments that uh, results in death and uh, others than just the effects of design law. So if, if God is love, there must be some times in divine judgment that includes a reason for killing or taking life. Am I wrong? So this is a very common question that people ask all the time, and there are multiple uh, underlying assumptions that cause the confusion. You clear the assumptions, then the confusion clears. First, first assumption is that first and second death are the same. What is the wages of sin death? The, the death from which you go to sleep and are raised again, or the death from which there is no resurrection? Okay. So when we talk about punishment for sin, we're talking about second death. We're not talking about first death experience. However, people look at first death experiences in the Old Testament and then ask, well, God must punish for sin. No, that conflates two issues, merges two issues that are actually separate issues because they look similar. Okay. So second death experience that's a future event that hasn't happened for anybody, wicked or righteous. So we can't say that any person has been punished for sin by being killed by God, because that's never happened. There's no historical event for that. We don't take the position that some take, that God never uses his power to put some to sleep in first death. Okay, and This is part of the language difficulty as well, because we use the word death for both, so it makes it confusing. Jesus described the first death as asleep. I'm going to go wake Lazarus up. He's asleep. The girl that had died, why are you crying? She's only asleep. They laughed at him. So Jesus calls the death that we call death sleep. It's a time of suspended animation where the individual's uh, in, uh, mind and, and capacity of thinking is just in a state of sleep, like your computer when it runs out of power. It goes into sleep mode, and it's not operational. So the identities of people at the first death, the hardware, body, shuts down, your soul, psyche, individuality, uh, psyche is the Greek word for soul, uh, is stored on the heavenly servers, the Lamb's Book of Life, waiting to be downloaded into a new body and have the breath, spirit, breathe in so you live again. So it's just like your your computer has been destroyed, but you had backup on a cloud, you wait uh, to get new hardware, download the backup, and you've resurrected your computer. So first death experience, God has put many people to sleep. The question is why? What's the reason? What's the context? After Adam sinned, how many human beings could be saved without Jesus? None. So Genesis 3.15, Messiah is promised. The seed, the seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head. Our only hope for any human life is Jesus coming. Satan, the whole Testament story, is Satan working to obstruct the plan of salvation by preventing Jesus from coming. At the time of the flood, he almost has his win because there's only one righteous human left on earth. Every other person have, are working against God now, and God will not have Jesus born to Jezebel nor force a woman against her will. And so God acts. What's he act to do? He acts in righteousness, and he judges diagnoses, law lens, what law lens, diagnoses the problem. His love for humanity, I will act, put these people to sleep, keep open avenue for Messiah, or else no human can be saved. So this was not an act of punitive um, justice to punish people. This was an act of mercy and love to keep open the avenue for Messiah. And you see the same thing that happened with the Korah rebellion. These are the people through whom which the Messiah was going to come, and Korah was working for Satan to try and corrupt and destroy the people so there would be no Messiah to come. Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities, without them on the scene, only one tribe, two tribes really make it to the end. When the Messiah comes, ten of them get assimilated because they get into paganism and, and 
and all types of cult worship and, and their loyalty to God is broken up. And so God excises from the community the minimum number necessary to remove that negative influence. So the the, the uh, genetic tribe of, of Abraham can, can fulfill its purpose and be the avenue for Messiah. That's the whole Testament story. That's what you see. None of it is punitive. It's all diagnostic and therapeutic to keep open avenue for Messiah. I encourage you to go to our, our, our website if you want more and type in the flood. I've written a couple long blogs and explain in the blogs how the flood was not only merciful and, and an act of grace for the whole human race, because it kept open the avenue for Jesus, but even for the people who died in the flood, it was an opportunity for their salvation. Anybody get why that is? Not on the ark. Not on the ark, but they had been preached to for 120 years. And the flood was confirming evidence that Noah was right, and all the pundits and theologians of the day were wrong. And they could have responded like the thief on the cross who at the end of his temporal life accepted Jesus. His temporal life still ended. But where will we see that thief? We have no idea if any of those people who saw the rains come down and the flood said, you know what? And they fell on their knees and confessed and asked God to forgive them. We have no idea. That was an act of mercy for them. Yeah, what about, I've just written a blog on that. I've written a blog. Just type in Ananias on our website and read about it. Okay. So, next question. Why were the Jews God's chosen people? What does that mean? Thank you. So, uh, the Jews were chosen for a purpose, and the purpose was primarily to be the avenue for the Messiah. It's the branch of the human family. Why were they chosen? My view is God looked down the corridors of time and probably looking at multiple different human groups. Abraham was a man who had faith, and he looked down the corridors of time, seeing the workings out of all the attacks of Satan, and knew that through Abraham's family, there would be a loyal group through whom he could bring the Messiah. And this is why. It was all about bringing Messiah. That's the purpose of choosing the family. No other purpose. And that's the focus of the Old Testament. That's why we don't focus on the Chinese. It's not because God doesn't love them. Jesus wasn't coming through them. That's why we don't focus on any other people group. Even Abraham's other kids, like Esau's kids, we don't focus on them in Scripture because the focus of Scripture is plan of salvation focus. That's its focus. That's why we focus where we focus. So that's why they were chosen. Just read your blog, War About War. Uh, question, what if someone is trying to kill your child? How would God want you to handle that? I'm trying to wrap my head around uh, your lessons. Never, uh, is it never justified to kill? So let's take your example. Someone is trying to kill your child. Let's say your child's 16, 15. And the person trying to kill them is your 19-year-old son. <laughs> and they're high on drugs right now. And they're angry because your 16-year-old wouldn't give them money for their drugs. What would God have you do? And you happen to know that your 16-year-old has already given their heart to the Lord, is a really Christ-like person, altruistic, and they, they didn't give the money because they really wanted to help their older brother. What would God have you do if you have a gun in your hand? Shoot the 19-year-old who's clearly out of harmony with God? Who needs more time to come to repentance? Whose life is in an eternal interest is the one that you need to keep on this earth? See, which law lens are you looking through? Human law and justice? Kill them is wrong. God's law? I love them all. They're all my children. I love them all. The problem is we almost always want to answer these questions about justice, not through love, but through rules and enforcement. 
and through us being hurt and through us being outraged by the wrongs that were done. And we want to retaliate. And this is how Satan traps people because real wrongs happen in this world. Real ugly wrongs happen that are disgusting. And the righteous are, are sickened when they see them. And we should be. But what's the old saying? Two wrongs don't make right. a right. Would you share your theory on why the push for mandate COVID vaccines since it does not prevent transmission? Why was the mandate if it doesn't prevent transmission? Well, um, I, I don't think you're going to find one reason. I think there was a confluence of factors working together, and different parties had different motivations. There were some parties that were motivated by greed. They, they worked for industries that, that, that made billions and billions of dollars through this, and they were motivated by greed. Others were motivated by power and ego. And others were motivated by control, and I think there were some that had been motivated to call the human population, to, to reduce fertility of the human population. I do believe that's true. And there's evidence emerging to suggest that, in fact, uh, data out of the uh, healthy military population that were forcibly injected uh, or, or terminated uh, show that, uh, inf- uh, that miscarriages are up 300% in women, healthy women, and infertility is up 470% in those who got the injections. Uh, so, And this was warned about by multiple doctors in the very beginning, uh, uh, the impact on, on female fertility. And then also there's a whole bunch of people who have died that you have not been told about from these things, and they're continuing to die. Uh, I have a blog that comes out next week. Uh, it's called The Ten Commandments of Religious Liberty, the Church's Responsibility. You're going to discover that the church broke all ten, basically. All ten of them the church broke. I document there with links and resources um, the, the hundreds of thousands currently, but it's going to end up being millions, but it's hundreds of thousands currently, more people have died from the mandates and interventions than were saved by the mandates and interventions. We've killed many, many more people, and it's only increasing every year. And this is part of the reason why, in my view, we've got the, uh, the, the, the Russia and Ukraine invasion, because they don't want you to see it. They don't want you to know how bad they've hurt the world through these mandates. It's very interesting. Those who understood God's methods, the principles that we espouse in this class, we were never deceived from the beginning. You can go back to April 2020, and we were telling you in this class that this disease was not severe enough to warrant a vaccine, and you should be very leery of it. And then we were immediately on the methods. The methods don't coerce and compel. They warn, but they leave people free. And the only righteous use to actually restrain the liberty of a person is to quarantine an actively infected person who is contagious. While they're infected and they're contagious. That, that is a righteous thing to do. Okay? But other than that, every other thing they did was unrighteous. I keep going. Move on. Because I could go all day on that. <laughs> Would the same thing apply to the flu vaccine? Uh, no, because they didn't use the same methods in the flu vaccine. Uh, the, the flu vaccine is, a, is, 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 is made differently. It's not the same mechanism of of molecular material. It's not a genetic molecular material, at least unless they've changed them. The historic ones weren't anyway. And they, and they don't, tip, uh, they don't typically mandate those and threaten uh, your, your liberties and make you get a flu vaccine passport and you can't travel unless you have a flu vaccine and, and, uh, et cetera, et cetera. This is typically not, not what they've done. Um, for me, it was never about the actual substance. It was about the mechanisms and methods used through the fear inducing to take away liberties. That was always the issue. 
It says, let's try to phrase the question from last week differently so it's better understood. When did God, why did God tell Joseph to flee Egypt with Mary and Jesus instead of direct, directly sending angels like he had already done with telling of Jesus' birth? What principles do you see in action here? I, for, for my answer to the question, why did he tell him to flee Egypt? Because he needed to flee to, to not become under Herod's authority and it was going to kill baby Jesus. Um, that's why he told him to flee. And God communicates this to us in various different ways, according to Scripture. And whichever way that God communicated to Joseph was the way that was effective because they actually fled. So it was all about communicating an idea. If, if, if God knew that an angel needed to come and talk to him, like, like an angel talked to Mary early on, then an angel would have come. So he just used the effective means. It's all about communication to inform and to get action next question um you said your thought you thought jesus was not the veil but it was uh, the obstruction keeping us from god so when jesus died that that was torn open that was torn open Uh, in the sanctuary theater symbolism is that what the veil was a metaphor for yes i've gone over this Uh, so the my view when you stand in the sanctuary as a uh a priest with your white robes, you're symbolic representing the priesthood of believers. Uh, you, you have a longing to be at one with God, to be yet atonement, to be unified, to be back in his presence. But as you look back to the Shekinah, there's something that obstructs your view. It's a veil. Uh, at Christ's death, it says that he, by his death, destroyed him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. And at his death, the veil is destroyed. Christ destroyed the lies of Satan that obstruct our view of God, and Christ destroyed the carnal nature that he took upon himself. He became sin, though he knew no sin that by his death we might become the righteousness of God. So the internal temptations of fear and selfishness he felt, tempted in every way just like we are, yet without sin, and he overcame those by his self-sacrificial love, establishing a new humanity, the second head of humanity, the new Adam. And so the two things that obstruct our unity with God are the lies that we believe and our own selfish nature represented by the veil, and it was destroyed, opening a new way, and thus Christ is the new way through the veil into unity with the Father. It says, uh, not a question, but I wanted to share my joy with you all. Today, my pastor attended a beginning faith Sabbath school class in which I, I teach design law, and he was delighted to discover that sin is, what sin is and what forgiveness is, how God's law works, and the seven levels of moral obedience are about. Um, he heard bits and pieces before, and both he and his wife thought it all made a lot of sense. Keep up your good, patient work. So that, thank you for sharing that. Uh, thank you for your ministry. You're doing, uh, you're changing lives. I can't find another ministry church that is so coherently portrays God so well. Uh, with the flood, the rich young ruler, Ananias and Sapphira, many other examples, they, uh, they conclude, uh, and cast judgment that all, when all, uh, we, when all we may have is history. Uh, their minds, uh, struggle to make sense of it all, but they are caught up in a penal legal ideology. Uh, thank you for being a voice of reason. Thank you for backing up, uh, reason with scripture and science and experience. My question is about Matthew 18.34, the man, um, who is forgiven his debts, but, uh, forgives not the debt of him who owed him. The, the King James says, uh, his Lord was worth, and his Lord was worth and delivered him to his tormentors, Servant's heart, and the king gave him over to isolation and torment that a hard heart... No, wait. I think I lost my line here. The Lord the Lord uh, was worth and delivered him to his tormentors till he should pay all that was due him unto him. And the remedy paraphrase says, angry at his... At his, that his mercy did not transform his servant's heart, the king gave him over to the isolation and torment that a hard heart causes until the debt of mercy was fully paid. So keeping with the design law in what uh, the text actually says, the king didn't put him in jail 
as I was taught as a child. Is that right? Uh, he left him to reap the anguish uh, his rejection of mercy breeds, but I can't reconcile this with the ending until his debt was paid. Um, did the king put him in jail or not? What, uh, so there's, there's a parable. He's using a parable to try to teach a greater reality. In that system, an earthly system, in the parable, the king put him in jail. Okay? Till he, till his debt was paid. That's a metaphorical way of describing that you are imprisoned in your, the prison of your own guilt, shame, hardness of heart, selfishness, isolation. You imprison yourself in this misery until the quote debt is paid. And what pays the debt? Until you either repent and get a new heart and right spirit, so you're out of your prison, or until you die of sin in the end. That's what it is. The suffering never ends until either one is repented and healed by God, or they, in the end, surrender their life and no longer live. Do you have an estimate on how long the mark of the beast will be in place until the return of Jesus? No, I do not. <laughs> so while the Bible... um yeah, while the Bible mentions the narrow road to life, wide road to destruction, I think Ellen White even mentions um, only a few walk towards salvation. And most recently I heard a famous SDA pastor mention that, that though very few would be saved, um, what are your thoughts? I know the Bible mentions a multitude that no man can number, but someone could say it would be hard to count 50,000 people too. Uh, as someone who has always worried about salvation for myself and loved ones, this feels more discouraging because it only, if only a few are saved, how on earth could I in my sinfulness ever be one of them? So I think um, that the reality is the majority of people through human history are not going to be saved. But that doesn't mean that there's not an innumerable host that are saved. There are 7 billion people on the planet right now. If 1 billion of them is, is saved, you couldn't personally count those. That, that you look out at that mob and you go, I, I can't, I, that's, that's, an un, that's an uncountable host. But it's still a minority, and that's just the people alive today. So if you look at the history of the human race, though, there are always, always small remnants. Noah and his family at the time of the flood. Lot and his righteous daughters <laughs> <laughs> at the time of Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, the 7,000 in Israel that didn't bow the knee at the time of Elijah. So, but looking at numbers is really the question. It's, it's, it's really completely inconsequential to your personal security. Uh, what did it matter to Noah's salvation that he and his family, the only ones got on the boat? Did he look around and say, oh, man, we're the only ones. Huh, I guess this boat won't float us. <laughs> or it didn't matter for his salvation how many others came. The only question was that he was going to get on the boat. You shouldn't look at how many others are getting on the boat. You should just answer the question, are you getting on the boat? Period. Are you accepting Jesus? Are you following what he's directed in your life? It doesn't matter if the whole rest of the world rejects it. Are you going to stand on the, on the plain of Dura and not bow the knee when the rest of the people do? Or are, you, or are you going to bow? Is it group peer pressure? So don't look at the people. Keep your eyes fixed on Christ. Um, don't you think, though, that was discouraging for Noah to be preaching for 100 years and just... His family, don't you think he was discouraged by that? I guess it depends what you mean by discouraged. If, if, his, if his encouragement was coming from the responses of people rather than from, well done, thou good and faithful servant, rather than honoring God and fulfilling his duty to God, where was he focusing for his many people in this world focus on worldly responses of other people for their measurement or barometer of their personal success and validation? I'm doing well because the group told me I'm doing well. 
So Adolf Hitler, at the time of his uh, power, was doing very well if you saw the massive mobs that praised him as he went everywhere because he had a lot of support from his community. Jesus, on the other hand, was despised and rejected of men, so he didn't do very well. <laughs> okay, my, my point being is, uh, discouragement, I think, heartbroken might be better, saddened, grieved, yeah. disappointed, but, but if his focus was on fulfilling the Lord's purposes, wouldn't he still feel very successful? Through him and his family, the human race survived. The whole generations from, from all, from that time. How many billions are, are here because of Noah? Yeah. Including, of course, the Avenue for Messiah. What is the name of the last week's Europe study? Okay, so I, I, I posted in the question, if somebody's asking when I said about last week's study, four out of five, so forth, I posted that in, in where you ask questions in the member section. I just posted a link. So if you hit that link, you can get right to the website where that information is. Um, what if we are being prepared to meet God while the rest, while we rest? What's the difference from that and being declared righteous? So if we're being prepared to meet God while we rest, what's the difference? I'm not even sure I understand that question. Oh, 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 okay. We're talking about in sleep. I see. I got you. I was thinking Sabbath rest. We rest on the Sabbath, and and uh, it's like I'm not tracking that at all. Okay, okay, rest. Okay, while we're asleep. So, what's the difference? The uh, uh, being declared righteous. So, declaring righteous is actually that would be like. So, what would be the difference? Somebody's got cancer, and it is a surgical cancer that can be cured with removing the cancer, and they go into surgery, and the doctor, and they trust the doctor. And they say, I trust you. Will you do for me what I can't do and remove this cancer? And so they're put to sleep. And the doctor removes the cancer. Okay. And they wake up cancer-free versus somebody over here who doesn't get the surgery, but the doctor writes a note that they're cancer-free and declares them cancer-free. Are those the same thing? Okay, the penal legal view is that I'm going to declare them to be righteous even though they're not. Our view is God actually fixes what's broken and removes all the defects in heart, mind, character and purifies us, cleansing us, heart and mind, so that we're righteous. We're actually righteous. There's a big difference. Let's see. Did you fully... Read my second question. Uh, They want me to go back and read this question about the... Yes, I did fully read your question. uh, And... um, about the flu vaccine, uh, that it doesn't give the mucosal antibodies because uh, you're getting uh, directly in the arm, through the nose, mouth, and so forth. So, so um, again, the flu vaccine is uh, different for multiple reasons. If you're asking, is it the same because you don't get mucosal antibodies, it has maybe a similarity in that way because you're not actually getting infected with it. Um, but, but it is not the same. Um, it's not an RNA-based as far as I know, does anybody know it's been changed historically? It's not an RNA base. It's an, it is a, um, attenuated actual virus that your body creates its own antibodies toward rather than causing uh, an RNA to go into your cells and produce a foreign antibody that expresses on your own cells and attacks. These are completely different mechanisms, number one. Um, but you don't get the mucosal antibodies. You're correct. Um, so is it beneficial? It can be to the to people. Is it as harmful? No. And there's no evidence that the flu vaccine has infertility problems and other high rates of death that are coming from this uh, mechanism. And further, it, it doesn't... Um, they didn't, they didn't use the um, coercive mandates associated with the flu vaccine. Um, is it that effective? No, it's not really that effective. 
Some people may benefit, but historically, it doesn't really prevent flu outbreaks. You get flu outbreaks, and they change every year. So it's more likely a big moneymaker for pharma industry than it is to actually protect society. Um, there is some suggestion that serial flu vaccines make your immune system weaker over time uh, than strengthening your, your immune system. Um, so if you do healthy lifestyle stuff, um, a vegetarian diet, um, typically you don't need the flu vaccine. So... Um, I think a, a plant-based diet reduces your um, bad outcomes by all these viruses by 75%. So just by having a healthy diet because your immune system's healthier, keeping your vitamin D levels up and so forth. I'm not a fan. I'm, I've had flu vaccine in the past more than once. I, I am not planning ever getting one again, um, primarily because I've lost complete trust in this system from what they've done this last two years. Let's close with prayer. Uh, gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love. We thank you for your methods. We thank you for the liberties that you've given us, and we thank you that you persuade us with, with evidence-based truths, and we ask that you will finish your work in our lives, make us effective in taking these principles to the world, and may you come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.